Okay, good to, good to see you guys. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Um, thank you, God, that you are a God who draws near to us. Thank you that you love us. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you come into this space, that this time would be yours and that you'd speak to us. Um, God, if, if we come here and the reasoning is just because this is a thing we do and we come and we listen and we leave and nothing changes in our life, then like, what, what really are we doing? So God, I pray that we would actually experience you this morning. I pray that you would, you would speak. Um, and God, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, who in here believed in like Santa or like the Tooth Fairy or something like that? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Did anybody in here believe in one of those things for like way too long? Like embarrassingly long? Chase? Okay. A few people? Um, I'm, I'm one of the people. My hand was up. Notice. My hand was up. For me, though, it was leprechauns. Okay? I believed in leprechauns, the little like eight-inch tall green man. Uh, I really thought that they were real. I really thought they were real. Um, and I really thought that I could catch one. Okay, and so every year around St. Patrick's Day, I would engineer this intricate leprechaun trap, and I'd put it out on the front porch, and part of the reason my belief in leprechauns continued way longer than it should have continued was because year after year, my parents would, like, take a boot from one of my sister's dolls or something, and they'd plant it in the trap with, like, some green sparkles, and so every year, I'd wake up on St. Patrick's Day, I'd come downstairs, and I'd see like a boot in the trap. And I thought that I had almost caught a leprechaun. Like a leprechaun was in my trap. There's spark, the magic sparkles. Like I almost got one. And I'd like cherish this boot. And then, you know, then the next year there'd be another boot. And, and then like a hat or something. And um, until last year, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, but I was probably like third or fourth grade maybe. Like way too long. I shouldn't have been believing in this stuff still. And my brothers came home. Uh, around that time of year. I don't know if it was one or both of them, but they were like, Mom and Dad, John should not still be believing in leprechauns. Like, this is not okay. He's way too old for this. And so they tried to tell me, John, there is no such thing as leprechauns. They're, they're fake. They're not real. And I was like, no, they are real, and I'm going to catch one tomorrow. I, I'm going to catch one tomorrow. And so I put my trap out, and the next day I wake up, and I come downstairs, and the whole doll is in the trap. <laughs> Uh, that they had taken the boots off of every year and, like, the hat. The whole doll was in the trap, and it, like, it crushed me. I was like, oh, okay, I guess there's no leprechauns. I was wrong. Um, but it's just funny. It's a funny story. I believed in leprechauns way too long. And I, I think, like, kids, it's kind of this really cool thing about kids. They, they have belief, right? They believe whatever, you're gonna, whatever you tell them, they're going to believe it. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why, why Jesus draws attention to children a handful of times in the gospel. In Matthew 18, 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And, and there's probably a few reasons why he said that, but one of the major reasons, I think, is because the faith that children have, the belief that they have. If you tell them something, they're going to believe you. And this, this idea of belief or faith, I'll kind of use those words interchangeably this morning, it's foundational for us as Christians. Foundational. Entering the kingdom can literally only happen through faith and belief. You, you cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from faith 
and belief. And really what faith is, it's just believing in something that you have not seen yet. It's believing something you have not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines it this way. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So faith is being convicted in and believing in something that you have not yet seen. Now, it's not believing in or, or having a conviction for something you don't have evidence for. Because I think there's really good evidence for why we believe what we believe. The idea that Jesus was the Son of God, walked the earth, did miracles, died on the cross, rose from the dead. There's a lot of really good historical evidence. There's even a lot of really good evidence in the sense of like the the transformation that faith in him has caused in my life and the people's lives around me. Uh, But there's really good evidence. So faith isn't believing in something you don't have evidence for. It's just believing in something you've not seen yet, right? We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. We haven't seen God. We We weren't there watching when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, but we believe that. That's what faith is. It's believing in something that you've not yet seen. And our beliefs, they shape us. They affect how we live this life. They, they shape our actions. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today. And this is a huge topic. Like, this is a, a massively important topic, faith. Um, because you, you literally cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from faith. And so we're going to be jumping back into the life of Abram. Uh, and we're going to explore this idea of, of faith in his life in chapter 17. But a little bit of context, the last few messages, really since Genesis 12, we've kind of periodically hit on this covenant that God made with Abram, right? It's probably a word you've heard the past few times you've been to age 2 covenant. This, God makes this covenant with this dude, Abram. And the reason is because God is all about partnership, right? God, when God has intention to do something on the earth. He doesn't just show up and do it. He, he picks a person and he partners with them to accomplish his will and his plans on the earth. And so way back in Genesis 12, God shows up and tells Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you great and I'm going to give you offspring and I'm going to give you this land. And the reason is so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I'm, I'm not just the God of Abram. I'm not just the God of the Jewish people. I am the God of all people but I want to I make you, Abram, the vehicle through which I bless all the nations of the earth. And so since chapter 12, we've seen this covenant come up over and over again. And this really requires faith on Abram's end, right? Like, Abram, this just happens. God just shows up to this man and starts telling him things. And it's now on Abram to believe God and to move forward. And what we see throughout the the story of Abram, is that he fails to do that often. Sometimes he does it, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he he has faith, and he believes God, and he takes him at his word, and he he might step out and take a risk, like leaving his homeland and moving into a land that God told him to go into. That's a huge risk. But then there's other times where you see doubt kind of well up in him, and he doesn't take God at his word. And even last chapter, we, we saw that in that promise that God gave Abram and his wife Sarai for a son, Uh, a a ton of time had passed from Genesis 12 to Genesis 16, where we were in last week. And we see Abram and Sarah, they start doubting God. They're like, we're old. Years and years and years have passed. We're not getting any younger. We still don't have a child. So I don't, maybe we should just take matters into our own hands. Abram, have sex with my servant woman, create offspring with her, and that can be our, our lineage. That was not God's plan. God didn't want them to do that. He wanted them to trust him, even when it was really hard. Um, Thankfully, God cleans up Abram's mess because he's good and he's merciful. 
But we just see this kind of battle for faith in Abram, as we've been reading in Genesis. And it's, it's cool because I feel like we probably experience that same tension, right? Like, we've probably encountered God in some way in our life. It's probably part of the reason why you're here in this room. But I know for a fact, too, we've all probably struggled with doubt. We've probably struggled to take God at his word and believe what he says because our experience looks much different. And that's part of why, like, I love the Bible. I, I say this pretty often. It's, it's not just a story. The Bible is not just a story about what happened. It's a story about what always happens. And we can, we can look back to this dude, Abram, 4,000 years ago, or however long it was, and we can see ourselves in this story. The same battle he had with faith, I think, that we have a lot of the time. And this is why we meet as a church and, and preach messages out of the Word of God. Because we, we believe and have faith that when we gather around the presence of God and we open up the Word of God, that the Spirit of God can actually do things. And he does do things. He moves in us. Um, and so that's my prayer this morning. I pray that he would do that, and I pray specifically that God this morning would, would increase our faith as we jump into to the life of Abraham. So let's do it. Chapter 17. Um, I'm pretty much just going to walk through this chapter the way that I walked through it on Tuesday or whenever it was that I sat down and read Genesis 17. Um, and so I'll read a little bit and then talk and read and talk and read and talk. So verse 1. Chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, which, by the way, Genesis 12, I believe he was 75 years old, so about 24 years have passed. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I'll stop there. So one thing we see in Scripture is that God has a lot of names, and it doesn't mean there's many gods with a bunch of different names. There's one true living God. Um, but this God that we worship is dynamic, <laughs> and he has a lot of different names. We see him called a lot of different names. In Genesis 16, last, last chapter, Hagar calls him the God who sees. Here, God shows up to Ab- Abram and says, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai is the word. And El Shaddai, you know, we translate probably all of your Bibles say God Almighty. Um, but the thing with, with Hebrew language, like there, there's not always total agreement on what certain word me, words mean. And this word Shaddai, I just saw this earlier in the week and thought it was really cool. There's actually a lot of debate on what Shaddai really means, what El Shaddai means. Um, some scholars actually think that that word, it comes from an Akkadian word, and it means the God of the mountainous wilderness. And I thought that was really cool. Either way, if it means God Almighty, awesome. That's an amazing name. If it means God of the mountainous wilderness, that's awesome. Either way, I think God is both of those things. And I I especially like that because if you put yourself in the shoes of Abram, he very much, I mean, he was literally living in a wilderness, but he was very much experiencing a wilderness in his life. He had all these promises from God for 24 years. A lot of you haven't even been alive for 24 years. (laughs) right? I'm 27. I'm barely, I'm barely have met that threshold. But 24 years have gone by, and he's had this God periodically show up and say things to him and make him these crazy promises. You're barren. His wife's barren, right? They're really old, but this God keeps saying, you're going ha- to become a great nation, but it hasn't happened. And then you're going to have this huge land. It hasn't happened. 
And, and not only that, but Abram has gotten himself into some serious messes. Like he has made his life challenging over and over again, and he's battled with this faith. And so I look at it, God, if, God, if that's what he's saying, I am the God of this mountainous wilderness, that's pretty cool because what that shows is that God, he, he wants us, he wants Abraham to understand that he is the God of the wilderness. He's there. He's the type of God that shows up and is present with his people in the wilderness. And I even just want to encourage some of you with that, right? Like, I, I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I'm sure some of you guys are in a rough spot right now, right? I'm sure some of you, like, if you kind of do some introspection and you look at your life, you kind of feel like you're in a wilderness. I'm sure there's people in this room that feel like that. And I just want to encourage you. God is almighty. He's powerful. He's awesome. And he's also the God of the wilderness. He's, he sees you and is with you and wants to give you his love in the wilderness. He wants to be present with you in the wilderness. So I just love that. Let's pick, pick it back up. So I am God Almighty. And then he says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So here God gives Abram a couple requests. He asks Abram to walk before him and to be blameless. But then he, that word that, he says that, or, or so that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. So covenant, we've already talked about this, but covenant, really what it is, it's an agreement with two or more parties. It's an agreement with terms, okay? And in this case, this covenant God makes with Abram, both sides. God, God agrees to some terms of this covenant that he lays out, but he also gives Abram some terms of this covenant, in the terms of the covenant for Abram, right here at least, we'll get to some more here in a little bit, but right here, it's walk before me and be blameless. So, so walk before me. I, really, I, I think what that means is like walk in the presence of me. As you continue to go about your life, do that with me. Make me your God. Be with me. Be in my presence. Submit your life to me. Walk before me. Walk obediently to me. And I, I think that that's... What God asked of Abram here is exactly what he's asking of us today still. Walk before me. Submit your life to me. And, and he asks us to do that. He asked Abram to do that because God cannot and will not covenant with an unsubmitted person. Okay? He will never do that. God will not covenant with an unsubmitted person. A lot of times, though, I think we want the benefits of what a covenant with God offers without being willing to submit to him. And that does not work. It does not work. The only way covenant relationship with God works is through submission. If you walk before him. And I, I, I God's amazing. Like he loves us. And I think he'll, he'll even show up and work in our lives if, if we're not submitted to him. But the full benefits of covenant relationship, eternity with him, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life, right? Those things only come through submission. And then the next thing he asks Abram is, is be blameless. And he asks him this because he's, he's a holy God, right? A holy God will only be in covenant with a holy people or a holy person. And so he's asking God, walk before me, submit your life to me, and be blameless, right? Remove sin from your life. Be righteous, Okay, verse 3. 
So God tells him, walk before me. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless so that I might make my covenant with you. Then Abram fell on his face. So I'm, I'm guessing him falling on his face is like his agreement to what God has asked him. I'm not sure. It doesn't say he like said anything. It just says he fell on his face, which I mean, that, that shows like right respect and honor and, and submission, really. Um, so Abram falls on his face and God says to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations. And kings will come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so what we see here, really, it's just God reiterating the same covenant that he's been showing up and speaking to Abram over the last few chapters. It's, it's similar. Like, honestly, this is pretty similar to what we read in Genesis 12 and then a couple chapters between 12 and 17. But there's a, a different detail here this time. And the detail that's different is this time God changes his name, right? This interaction results in a a name change for Abram. And any time in scripture someone's name changes, that's pretty significant. Um, It kind of signifies like the start of something new. Something's changing, and and the trajectory from here on out is going to be different, and your name is going to reflect that. So that's what's happening. And uh, Abram, his, his original name, it means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And the thing that, that strikes me um, from these few verses is the word have, have made. Those two words, have made, I have made. He says, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And that, that sticks out to me because that literally has not happened yet, right? Like, Abram does not have kids yet. He, I mean, he does, but not through Sarai, his wife. And that, that was God's plan from the beginning. You're going you're gonna to have offspring with Sarai, even though she's barren in your old age. But that hasn't happened, right? But God says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And that just strikes me because that hasn't happened. But God is saying it is already done. And I think that's, that's really cool. And, and the reason I, I, that, that resonates with me is because what I see here is an opportunity, an invitation that God's giving Abraham, Abraham Thank God I can call him Abraham now. It's so hard to remember to say Abram. But he's giving Abraham an invitation to step into faith. He's saying like, Abraham, I have made up my mind. It's as good as done. I have made you the father of many nations. And this is an invitation for Abraham to look at his experience that says he's literally not the father of many nations because he has not had any kids by Sarai yet. So he's looking at his experience, but then he can also look at what God is saying. I have made you this already. And he's able to, to believe, to attach his belief to this promise of what God is saying he's going to do. It's an invitation for faith. Okay, I have more I could say about that, but I'm going to, let's, let's, let's pick up verse 9. So God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And then he gives him some more, another term for this covenant, and it's kind of weird. But it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited to talk about this. So, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I'm not sure there's five verses in the Bible that use the word foreskin and circumcision more than these five verses. Um, Okay, so this, I'm excited to talk about this. I I think there's a lot of, I was even talking to, to Bradley beforehand, like there's some like interesting things in the Bible that, you know, maybe you even read as a little kid and you're like, that's so weird. Why is the Bible talking about penises a bunch? I'm going to use some adult language here, okay? Um, Why? Like, why is that happening? That's so weird. But one thing I've discovered is that, that when studying the Bible, when you come across something that's really weird, um, let that be a reason to press in even more. Because typically, when there's things that are really weird and confusing to you in the Bible— there's a lot of deep revelation packed into them. And believe it or not, I think there's some pretty deep revelation in these five verses about foreskins and circumcision. So, um, and maybe a question, because a lot of you have probably, the Bible actually uses that word circumcision a ton, right? It's a thing that's talked about a lot in Scripture. And some of you have probably wondered why. Like, why does God, why? Why is this a thing, right? A lot of times covenants have a sign, Right? I'm, I'm married to Ashley. We're in a covenant together. And the sign of this covenant is a ring on my finger. And she has a much prettier ring on her finger with diamonds on it. That's a sign of a covenant. And right here, what God is doing is he's giving Abraham a sign for this covenant that he's entering into with him. So why in the world is the sign of this covenant circumcision? Why? I'm going to answer that question. I have a few reasons. Track with me. And don't laugh at the adult language, okay? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. So um, reason number one, it's important to, uh, with anything in Scripture, it's important to understand the, the cultural context, which can be kind of hard because we're thousands of years separated from this. But a lot of times elsewhere, if you re- continue reading the Bible, you can pick up on a lot of the cultural context. And so a belief in Jewish culture and custom was actually that all of the generations of a person were in them at that point in time, okay? Does that make sense? So, for example, if you were to kill someone back in this time, I mean, that's serious because it's murder, but it's, it's really serious because you're not only killing them, you are murdering all of the generations after them. That's what the belief, the cultural belief was in this culture. So, Abraham, right, he's called a father of a nation or the father of many nations. So Jewish tradition, it, it, it would have been believed that the entire nation of Israel was in Abram, Abraham at that point in time, right? In his loins, in his reproductive system. That was the belief. The whole nation is inside of him at that point in time. Hebrews 7, 9 through 10, I don't have time to explain the context of this, but it says one might even say that Levi himself, which was Abraham's great-grandson, who receives tithes because he was a priest, He paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So 
few chapters ago, Abraham interacted with this guy, Melchizedek, and it's saying here in Hebrews 7 that Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he interacted with Melchizedek. Kind of interesting. So I just am reading that to prove my point that in Jewish culture and custom, it was believed that all of the nation was in the person at that point in time. So circumcision, the sign of the covenant, literally what it is, it's the permanent removal of skin on a man's penis. And you know how babies are made, right? The sperm comes into contact with the egg, fertilizes, and that's when life is, is formed at conception. And so when you, when you consider circumcision, really what's happening is at conception, the whole nation passes through the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. When, like, literally from the moment that life begins for his offspring and for any Jewish person, it was understood that you're, you are passing through the sign of the covenant. They're, like, being, in a, in a way, being marked as God's covenant people from literally the very beginning. It's kind of cool. Okay, I have a few more reasons. So, why circumcision? In this time, we've talked about this uh, already in past sermons, but a person's value in, in success, it was very much connected with their ability to create offspring. And so the, the reproductive system was massively important, and cro- procreation was even like understood to be this divinely orchestrated thing. And so God's literally asking them to make a permanent covenant mark on their reproductive system. And it's like, it's a constant reminder that they're dependent on God for their existence as a people. That's that's another answer to the question, why circumcision? It's a reminder that they're purely existing because God intended them to. Um, Another reason, circumcision, part of the the purpose of it, it was to set this people apart, right? But it's painful, right? It's a painful thing, especially for Abraham. He's going to, he's literally going to get circumcised when he's 99. We'll read that in this next part. That's painful. That is a sacrifice. <laughs> and I think part of the reason why circumcision is the sign of the covenant is, is for this reason. Covenant requires sacrifice. Being set apart is painful. Another reason, circumcision. So it's, it's the cutting off and removal of something. And really what, what, what um, this idea and theme of circumcision it actually foreshadows an entire biblical theme of repentance and, and putting off of sin and impurity and uncleanness. You see the Bible use the word circumcision all the time in situations where it has nothing to do with physical, literal circumcision. Like Jeremiah 4.4, 4, I'll read this. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Right there, he's speaking to his people, the Jews, right? Because they, they had turned their back on God and their hearts were dirty and they were covered in sin. And he's saying, like, remove, throw off, circumcise, get, get away from the, the, the filth that's on your heart. Repent. And so circumcision, it's, it's foreshadowing this whole biblical theme that you'll see throughout the whole rest of Scripture. Removing what's dirty. Removing sin. Removing what God doesn't will to be present in our life. And then last reason. So blood is shed. Why, why circumcision? Why does that matter? Part of the reason is because blood is shed. And this foreshadows a better blood covenant that's coming. In a few thousand years, when Jesus would come, 
live, die on the cross, shed his blood. So circumcision, it foreshadows a better blood covenant that leads to a spiritual circumcision of our hearts when we decide to follow Jesus. Here's what Ezekiel, I'm going to read this scripture from Ezekiel 36. This is the prophet Ezekiel prophesying what's going to happen under the new covenant when Jesus comes. This is what he says. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, when we follow Jesus, our old heart is removed and he gives us a heart of flesh, right? He, he gives us a new heart. It, it's, it's kind of wrapped all up in with this idea of being born again. You're, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Circumcision foreshadows all of this. Okay, so when you like, maybe some of you have been wondering since your childhood, why the heck is circumcision a thing that the Bible talks about so much? There's some reasons. Sound good? And, and really the goal, <laughs> I told a friend I was preaching on circumcision, and he, um, he told me that he had a buddy who, I guess, was not circumcised, and he heard a, a message on circumcision and was like, he had my friend drive him to the doctor, literally, to get circumcised. He's like in his 20s or something. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is not my goal with this message. In fact, go read, go read pretty much any of Paul's epistles, and he explains in detail why this doesn't really matter anymore, right? You can, you can be in God's covenant family and not be circumcised. So there you go. Um, okay, let's pick it back up. There you go. That's probably the most you've ever heard anyone talk about circumcision in a, in a church service. Verse 15. <clears throat> then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name, or sorry, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, the son that he had through Hagar, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, and behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He'll father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He was 13 when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his household those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So we even see in here that, that conflict of faith that I mentioned earlier, wrestling with doubt. We see that happen again. God tells him the same thing. 
And Abraham is like, no, like, j- just let my, my lineage pass on through, uh, through Ishmael. Let this covenant move forward through Ishmael. That's a lack of faith. That's Abraham not trusting the promise that God had given him. And God just straight up says, no, no, I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. And so Abraham, we see he does have faith. He, he believes God, and that belief leads to action. He actually goes and does the thing God asked him to do. He circumcises himself and all of the men in his household. That would have been a rough next couple weeks. Um, but he does it. And, and I think this is really cool because it, it communicates an important principle that faith, even though Abraham wrestled with faith, faith results in action. Faith results in action. You've probably heard that before, but it's true. Faith that leads to no action isn't actually faith. It's not. If you truly believe something, it's going to affect your decisions and what you do. And so more than this chapter is even about circumcision, I think really what it's about is faith. It's about Abraham taking God at his word, even when it was hard, and believing him. That's, that is the point, okay? Circumcision is not going to save anyone, and it, I don't think it was ever intended to save anyone. We can't be saved or forgiven because of anything that we do, okay? This covenant that God made with Abraham, it was designed to show Abraham and to show humanity and to show us that us as humans, we cannot hold up our end of the bargain with God, walk before me and be blameless. Like, we cannot do that. We fail over and over and over again. We, we gravitate towards sin, and so I think this covenant is meant to show us that, that, that doing the thing God asks us, we need to do it, but that's not going to save us, right? Circumcision is not going to save us because we're gonna, we are going to fail to hold up those terms of the covenant that God made with, him, with Abraham. This all really what it points forward to is a new covenant, and it's, it, it points forward to a covenant that's accessed by faith. What I've alluded to with Jesus, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, sacrificing himself for our sin, and the way that we, we experience forgiveness and, and enter into that covenant is through faith. It's through belief. Romans 4, 9 through 12, it, it speaks really clearly onto this, this idea of, of faith. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What we see there, like I said, it's all about faith. That's what God wants. He wants us to believe him. That's it. It's so simple. I could have just gotten up here and said that God wants us to believe him. That's my message. That's it. So I just, I want to close by talking about faith a little bit because that really is the whole point. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the thing in our life that pleases God. God wants to be believed in. And not only that, but faith is what saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is one of my favorite scriptures because what, it's so, what that is communicating is so cool. It's saying, by grace, we're saved through faith. The way I like to understand that, that verse is when we have faith, when we believe God, the thing that he has done, the thing that he showed us, when we believe, when we have faith, it creates space in our life. I, I like to think of it like a landing strip. It's almost like our faith acts as a landing strip for God's grace to come into our life and to, to change things, to bring transformation, to bring his kingdom. But it starts with our faith, right? When we believe, it makes room for God's grace to come in. And his grace literally is what saves us. And so that's really good news for us as Christians. You are not saved because of what you do or do not do. Salvation comes by faith. And when you have faith, God's grace invades your life. And this principle in Ephesians 2, it, it's not just for salvation. This principle should bleed into many other facets of our life. Faith saves us, but faith is also an important element of just the everyday life of a Christian. Go and read Hebrews 11. I don't have time to read it. I would love to. It's such an awesome chapter where it just goes through tons of different people. Sarah and Abraham, it talks about them. It says, Sarah, by faith, received the power to conceive. Abraham, by faith, moved out into a land as a, as a nomad, pretty much. And then it, go, it goes on. All these different people do these extraordinary things, impossible things, miraculous things. How? By faith. It's all by faith. Our life should be lived by faith. Why? Because faith is the landing strip in our life that God's grace can come and move through and invade. If we don't have faith, we're not giving God room to come and move in our life. Does this make sense? Yeah? It's, it's, a, it's a principle that is so important. And, like, I, I look at my life, and I have to confess, you know, I lack faith all the time. I doubt God all of the time. And I am confident, just a little bit of confession here, that my lack of faith oftentimes limits God. It limits what he desires to come and do in a situation because I'm not believing. And so there's no opportunity for his grace to come in. But I, I can tell you from experience, there's been times in my life where there's something impossible in front of me and, God, and I, I, I believe him. I take him at his word and I believe him. And I've seen him come and do crazy things that are mind-blowing. I've seen people get physically healed in their bodies. I've seen demonic spirits leave people because of faith, right? And so my, my desire as a man is to, to be a man who believes God, who takes him at his word, who has faith, who lets that faith drive me to action. And I really want that for our church. That's my, that's my prayer this morning. I really want us to be a people that just take God at his word and believe him. Because when we do that, the kingdom of God comes and things happen. Jesus talks about faith a lot, a lot. And some of what he says about faith is very, un it's uncomfortable to me. It's really uncomfortable. And it, it like, I look at the scripture and I look at my life and it checks me so hard. I'm going to read a few scriptures about just things Jesus says about faith. Mark 9, 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Woe 
Jesus is saying all things are possible. So what's impossible? Nothing. All things are possible for one who believes. Matthew 17, 20, his disciples are trying to cast the demon out of a boy, and it's not working. And they ask Jesus, why can we not get this demonic spirit to leave this little boy? His answer, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed. I'll pause. I have a few more I want to read. I'll pause. What I don't want you to hear, hear me saying right now, because I, I think there's some crazy people that you might see on TV that will, will quote scriptures like this and maybe even preach a message similar to this and be like, if you just believe, you'll have wealth, health, and prosperity, and every, you'll get everything that you want, and you'll get that dream job, and you'll get that nice car. That is not what I'm saying. If we, if we take it that way, we really need to look at our heart because there's something deeply wrong. That's, that stuff does not matter. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless, right? Jesus lived a hard life. It's not, the, the point of the Christian life isn't to get a bunch of stuff from God. It's to bring his kingdom to the earth. And I'm telling you, when we have faith, that can actually happen. That happens. But when we lack faith, it doesn't. A lot of the time, it doesn't. God will still be good and gracious and show up and move sometimes, but I think that we so limit him by our lack of faith, our inability to just take him at his word and believe him. I'll read a few, a few more. Mark 6, 5 through 6. This is Jesus back in his hometown. So he's gone back to, to where he's from, interacting with a bunch of people that he's known for a long time, and it says this, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus marvels at the unbelief that, that was present in his hometown, probably because they knew him and they were familiar with him, but they don't believe. They, they have unbelief. And what happens? Jesus could do no mighty work there. That is mind-blowing to me. They lacked faith, and it actually, it says Jesus, he could do no mighty work there. Crazy. Uh, John eleven forty. Jesus said to her, this is right before Lazarus gets raised from the dead. He said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I love that. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. And that's true for us too. If you believe, you will see the glory of God in your life. It's true. Around your life, through your life. And then I have one more. And this one pierces me like a dagger. Oh my gosh. Luke 18, 8. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I like to make that verse personal. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in your life? Will he find faith in your life, yes or no? I want the answer to that question to, that question to be yes. <laughs> when the Son of Man comes, I want him to find faith in my life because faith pleases him. When we take him at his word and we believe him, it pleases him. And it creates space, landing strip space, for his grace to come in and move in our life. So do you, do you take God at his word? Do you believe him? Do you believe him when it's really hard to? When the circumstances that are in front of you make it feel really hard to believe him? Do you still believe him? Do you 
have faith that causes you to step out of your comfort zone and take risks? Will he find faith in your life? And you know, faith, it should affect many facets of our life. Our, our faith should actually even affect other people's lives. It should affect the, the future of our life, like even our plans. You know, I, I think, um, man, just me, me personally, I think I lack, and a lot of other people lack faith when it even comes to our plans and our future. I think that if we're honest, a lot of us, we refuse to entertain certain ideas or be open to what God's ideas may be for our future because we lack faith. I think a lot of us probably have more faith in money, and that's the thing that we follow post-college. Money, like that, that's what I need, and so I'm going to follow that. If that leads me to a new city, or that leads me to another country, or that leads me here or there, then I'll go. I'll follow that. But it's like, what if the Holy Spirit asks you to move to a new place or a new country or to choose a new profession? What it, what it, I'm not saying that that's what he's asking each of you, but, but if he did ask you that, what would your response be? I want to respond in faith. And, you know, money's not bad. I'm not condemning money. Money's a good thing. But if money is what directs the course and path of your life, then you actually have more faith and trust in a number, an account, or, or a piece of paper than you do in God. And that sounds like a bad idea to me. <laughs> or even like provision. I, I read Matthew 6, and it talks about not being anxious about our food or our clothing or our shelter. It talks about the, the lilies of the field and, and the, the birds, and God clothes, clothes them and, and provides for them, and we're of much more value than those things. And so it's like, when, I think there's an invitation to have faith and believe God when it comes to provision, when it even comes to, to financial provision or, or our future or our job or these kinds of things or even just provision in the sense of like God coming through in a situation. I have a friend um, that I was talking with recently. He is a criminal. He's has uh, committed so many felonies. He's facing five years in prison right now. And, and I was talking to him and he's really been following Jesus and his life's changed. Like he's a totally different man than the man he was when he committed those crimes. And he's on probation right now and he's in this program and, and I was talking to him and he's like really nervous because he has to go and stand before this judge and he was telling me about this situation and I, I just felt like I know for certain you will not be going back to prison and that you're going to get to come back to this place and that's a really risky thing to say to someone but I, I felt like I should tell him it with that much certainty and clarity and I told him I said you you will not be going back to prison that's not going to happen tomorrow when you have to go see that judge. That will not happen because I think God's a provider and he's good. And you're a new man. That was the old man who did all that stuff. And, I, and that's a really risky, uncomfortable thing to pray and, and share with a person. But it happened. He didn't go back to prison. Praise God. I even think like physical healing or, or miraculous things, right? When we believe that God can and will move, we make room for his grace to come into that situation and, and operate through us. Or, or even restored relationships. I, God is a capable God. He wants to be believed in, though. He wants us to believe him and to, to step out. And like I said, the thing with faith is, is that it's really risky. It's risky. Taking God at his word is risky because what if it doesn't happen, Right? That's what we all ask. That's what we all, when we feel a conviction to go do that hard thing or to pray that really hard prayer, that's the question all of us ask, what if it doesn't happen? But you know what? That what if it doesn't happen literally 
reveals our lack of faith. That is what that is. Like, when I ask that question, when God tells me, go pray for that person to get healed, and I say, well, God, what if it doesn't happen? I'm going to look dumb. That is a lack of faith in me, right? And so I just, like, I, I so want God to just kill that and that to just not be in me anymore. And it's like, maybe, and I'm not saying, you know, most of the time I'll reason through that and hopefully I'll end up going and, and doing that thing still and letting faith triumph. Right? We see that in Abraham. Um, in the story, he lets faith win. Like he ends up following the faith perspective rather than the doubt perspective. And, and God moves. And I, I think he's gracious and he's patient with us. And he invites us to have small faith. Like the faith like the size of a mustard seed. But I, I don't like that question. What if it doesn't happen? I, I really do not like that question. I think a much better question is what if it does happen? What if he does come through in that way I, I think he might come through in? That's a faith perspective. That is the question I want to start asking. Not what if it doesn't happen. I want to start asking, what if it does? What if he does heal that person? What if he does answer that prayer? I think that Hebrews 11 faith is believing that it will. And if we believe, if we have faith and we act on it, we will see the glory of God. And I think that I want to read, just in closing, worship team, you can come up. I want to read a um, scripture from the book of Daniel. And I think it gives a much better perspective than the what if it doesn't happen thing. It's such an awesome story. In this story, these three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to participate in this Babylonian worship that they were forced to participate in. And the consequence was you get thrown into a fire. <laughs> if you don't worship in this way, you get, literally get thrown into a fire. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respond to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. What kind of confidence is that? They, they have so much belief and faith in their God. Imagine you are standing before a tyrant king that has every intention in the world to throw you into a furnace. And it's just you and your friends and the king in the furnace. And you say, our God will deliver us. You're a lunatic. That's crazy. Like, that is, that does not make, how? How? How is he going to deliver you? Like, that doesn't even make sense. But they have so much faith in this moment. And one, I imagine what God was doing up in heaven when he observed this. I guarantee you smiling. <laughs> he probably was like, these guys are awesome. I love that they have confidence in me. I love that they believe me. I love that they understand that I'm their protector and I'm going to come through. But then in verse, verse 18, they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you've set up. And I just want to say, what if and even if are two very different things. That, that what if question is a bad question. I don't want to ask it anymore. A much, a, a, an okay question is even if. Even if. Even if God doesn't show up in this way that I want him to. Even if he doesn't provide for me in the way that I think I might need provision. Even if I pray for that person and they don't get healed, it's okay because God is still good and I'm just going to do everything in my power to believe him and to take risks for what I believe he is going to do. What if and even if are so different. They're so different. 
And so I want that to be your perspective. And, and I think that's the perspective that comes when we believe that God is good, like really good. Even if he doesn't answer in this way, I think he's going to. It's okay because I trust him and I love him and he's good and I know he loves me and I know that I have assurance. I'm going to be with him forever. I think that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's perspective. But guess what happened? God's grace invaded that situation because of their faith and he delivered them. And they didn't get burned in the fire. They were walking around in the fire. There's a fourth dude with him. People think it was probably Jesus. And they were fine. Because they had faith. And so my invitation for you is to just, maybe even a start is praying that prayer. God, increase my faith. Just grow me in faith, please. And look for opportunities where it's, you can believe him for the impossible. Because it says all things are possible with him. So what is God asking you to have faith for in your life? Where, where have you been lacking faith? You know, maybe, maybe some of you are not, you're not a Christian. You, the Ephesians 2, by grace you're saved through faith. Maybe you haven't even had that kind of faith yet. You haven't had the faith that says, Jesus, okay, I trust you, that you sacrificed your life to circumcise my heart from evil and give me a new heart. I, I, I want to believe you. Man, if, if that's the kind of faith God's inviting you into this morning, take that step. It's the best decision you'll ever make, and it will influence your whole eternity. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. But I, I just want you to be asking that question as we worship. God, where am I lacking faith? Where do you want me to grow in faith and belief? I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you offer us eternal life and that that doesn't come through circumcision. That doesn't come through doing a bunch of sacraments. That doesn't come through us trying as hard as we can to be a good person. That comes through faith, by grace, through faith. You are so good and you are so powerful and you are such a present, present God. You're with us. You're the God of the wilderness. You're God Almighty. And so I just ask in faith, God, that you just come into this space as we worship. Be here. Minister to us. Speak to us. Show us where we're lacking faith in our life. Show us the, the thing that we need to believe you for, that we're struggling to believe you for. Help us to take the risk of having faith because you are a God who comes through. And even if you don't come through in the way that we think you should, you're still good. You're still worthy. We love you. You're so good. Thank you, Jesus, for this church. Thank you for being here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to have a prayer team, by the way, and um, maybe there's like a, a really hard thing you want prayer for. Invite people on the prayer team to, to have faith on your behalf and pray for you. It's just an open invitation. So let's worship.